Section 49 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 11. Nana was growing up and becoming wayward. At fifteen years old she had expanded like a calf, white-skinned and very fat, so plump indeed you might have called her a pincushion. Yes, such she was, fifteen years old, full of figure and no stays, a saucy magpie face dipped in milk, a skin as soft as a peach skin, a funny nose, pink lips and eyes sparkling like tapers which men would have liked to light their pipes at. Her pile of fair hair, the colour of fresh oats, seemed to have scattered gold dust over her temples, freckle-like as it were, giving her brow a sunny crown. Ah, a pretty doll, as the lorieurs say, a dirty nose that needed wiping, with fat shoulders which were as fully rounded and as powerful as those of a full-grown woman. Nana no longer needed to stuff wads of paper into her bodice, her breasts were grown. She wished they were larger, though, and dreamed of having breasts like a wet nurse. What made her particularly tempting was a nasty habit she had of protruding the tip of her tongue between her white teeth. No doubt, on seeing herself in the looking-glasses, she had thought she was pretty like this, and so all day long she poked her tongue out of her mouth, in view of improving her appearance. "'Hide your lying tongue!' cried her mother. Coupeau would often get involved, pounding his fist, swearing and shouting, "'Make haste and draw that red rag inside again!' Nana showed herself very coquettish. She did not always wash her feet, but she bought such tight boots that she suffered martyrdom in St. Crispin's prison. And if folks questioned her when she turned purple with pain, she answered that she had the stomach-ache, so as to avoid confessing her coquetry. When bread was lacking at home, it was difficult for her to trick herself out, but she accomplished miracles, brought ribbons back from the workshop, and concocted toilettes, dirty dresses set off with bows and puffs. The summer was the season of her greatest triumphs. With a cambric dress which had cost her six francs, she filled the whole neighborhood of the Goutte d'Or with her fair beauty. Yes, she was known from the outer boulevard to the fortifications and from the Chausée de Clignancourt to the Grand Rue de la Chapelle. Folks called her Chicky, for she was really as tender and as fresh-looking as a chicken. There was one dress which suited her perfectly, a white one with pink dots. It was very simple and without a frill. The skirt was rather short and revealed her ankles. The sleeves were deeply slashed and loose, showing her arms to the elbow. She pinned the neck back into a wide V as soon as she reached a dark corner of the staircase to avoid getting her ears boxed by her father for exposing the snowy whiteness of her throat and the golden shadow between her breasts. She also tied a pink ribbon round her blonde hair. Sundays she spent the entire day out with the crowds and loved it when the men eyed her hungrily as they passed. She waited all week long for these glances. She would get up early to dress herself and spend hours before the fragment of mirror that was hung over the bureau. 
Her mother would scold her because the entire building could see her through the window in her chemise as she mended her dress. Ah, she looked cute like that, said Father Coupeau, sneering and jeering at her, a real Magdalene in despair. She might have turned a savage woman at a fair and have shown herself for a penny. Hide your meat, he used to say, and let me eat my bread. In fact, she was adorable, white and dainty under her overhanging golden fleece, losing temper to the point that her skin turned pink, not daring to answer her father, but cutting her thread with her teeth with a hasty, furious jerk, which shook her plump but youthful form. Then, immediately after breakfast, she tripped down the stairs into the courtyard. The entire tenement seemed to be resting sleepily in the peacefulness of a Sunday afternoon. The workshops on the ground floor were closed. Gaping windows revealed tables in some apartments that were already set for dinner, awaiting families out working up an appetite by strolling along the fortifications. Then, in the midst of the empty echoing courtyard, Nana Pauline and the other big girls engaged in games of battledore and shuttlecock. They had grown up together and were now becoming queens of their building. Whenever a man crossed the court, flute-like laughter would arise and then starched skirts would rustle like the passing of a gust of wind. The games were only an excuse for them to make their escape. Suddenly stillness fell upon the tenement. The girls had glided out into the street and made for the outer boulevard. Then, linked arm in arm across the full breadth of the pavement, they went off, the whole six of them, clad in light colours with ribbons tied around their bare heads, with bright eyes darting stealthy glances through their partially closed eyelids, they took note of everything, and constantly threw back their necks to laugh, displaying the fleshy part of their chins. They would swing their hips, or group together tightly, or flaunt along with awkward grace, all for the purpose of calling attention to the fact that their forms were filling out. Nana was in the centre with her pink dress all aglow in the sunlight. She gave her arm to Pauline, whose costume, yellow flowers on a white ground, glared in similar fashion, dotted as it were with little flames. As they were the tallest of the band, the most women-like and most unblushing, they led the group and drew themselves up with breasts well forward whenever they detected glances or heard complimentary remarks. The others extended right and left, puffing themselves out in order to attract attention. Nana and Pauline resorted to the complicated devices of experienced coquettes. If they ran till they were out of breath, it was in view of showing their white stockings and making the ribbons of their chignons wave in the breeze. When they stopped, pretending complete breathlessness, you would certainly spot someone they knew quite near, one of the young fellows of the neighborhood. This would make them dawdle along languidly, whispering and laughing amongst themselves, but keeping a sharp watch through their downcast eyelids. They went on these strolls of a Sunday mainly for the sake of these chance meetings. Tall lads wearing their Sunday best would stop them joking and try to catch them round their waists. Pauline was forever running into one of Madame Gaudron's sons, a seventeen-year-old carpenter who would treat her to fried potatoes. Nana could spot Victor Fauconnier, the laundress's son, and they would exchange kisses in dark corners. It never went further than that, but they told each other some tall tales. Then, when the sun set, 
The great delight of these young hussies was to stop and look at the mountebanks. Conjurers and strongmen turned up and spread threadbare carpets on the soil of the avenue. Loungers collected, and a circle formed, while the mountebank in the centre tried his muscles under his faded tights. Nana and Pauline would stand for hours in the thickest part of the crowd. Their pretty fresh frocks would get crushed between greatcoats and dirty work smocks. In this atmosphere of wine and sweat, they would laugh gaily, finding amusement in everything, blooming naturally like roses growing out of a dunghill. The only thing that vexed them was to meet their fathers, especially when the hatter had been drinking. So they watched and warned one another. Look, Nana, Pauline would suddenly cry out, here comes Father Coupeau. Well, he's drunk too, oh dear, said Nana, greatly bothered. I'm going to beat it, you know. I don't want him to give me a wallop. Hello, oh, how he stumbles, good Lord, if he could only break his neck. At other times, when Coupeau came straight up to her without giving her time to run off, she crouched down, made herself small, and muttered, Just you hide me, you others. He's looking for me, and promised he'd knock my head off if he caught me hanging about. Then, when the drunkard had passed them, she drew herself up again, and all the others followed her with bursts of laughter. You'll find her. He will. He won't. It was a true game of hide-and-seek. One day, however, Bosch had come after Pauline and caught her by both ears, and Coupeau had driven Nana home with kicks. Nana was now a flower-maker and earned forty sous a day at Titreville Place in the Rue de Caire, where she had served as apprentice. The Coupeau had kept her there so that she might remain under the eye of Madame Larat, who had been forewoman in the workroom for ten years. Of a morning, when her mother looked at the cuckoo clock, off she went by herself, looking very pretty, with her shoulders tightly confined in her old black dress, which was both too narrow and too short. And Madame Larat had to note the hour of her arrival and tell it to Gervaise. She was allowed twenty minutes to go from the Rue de la Goutte d'Or to the Rue de Caire, and it was enough, for those young hussies have the legs of racehorses. Sometimes she arrived exactly on time, but so breathless and flushed that she must have covered most of the distance at a run after dawdling along the way. More often she was a few minutes late. Then she would fawn on her aunt all day, hoping to soften her and keep her from telling. Madame Lerat understood what it was to be young and would lie to the coupeau, but she also lectured Nana, stressing the dangers a young girl runs on the streets of Paris. Mon Dieu, she herself was followed often enough. Oh, I watch you needn't fear, said the widow to the coupeau. I will answer to you for her as I would for myself, and rather than let a blackguard squeeze her, why, I'd step between them. The workroom at Titreville was a large apartment on the first floor, with a broad work-table standing on trestles in the centre. Round the four walls, the plaster of which was visible in parts where the dirty yellowish-gray paper was torn away, there were several stands covered with old cardboard boxes, parcels, and discarded patterns under a thick coating of dust. The gas had left what appeared to be like a daub of soot on the ceiling. The two windows opened so wide that, without leaving the work-table, the girls could see the people walking past on the pavement over the way. Madame Lerat arrived the first, in view of setting an example. 
Then, for a quarter of an hour, the door swayed to and fro, and all the work-girls scrambled in, perspiring with tumbled hair. One July morning, Nana arrived the last, as very often happened. "'Ah, oh, me,' she said, "'it won't be a pity when I have a carriage of my own.' And, without even taking off her hat, one which she was weary of patching up, she approached the window and leant out, looking to the right and to the left, to see what was going on in the street. "'What are you looking at?' asked Madame Larras suspiciously. "'Did your father come with you?' "'No, you may be sure of that,' answered Nana coolly. "'I'm looking at nothing. I'm seeing how hot it is. Oh, it's enough to make anyone having to run like that.' It was a stifling hot morning. The work-girls had drawn down the Venetian blinds between which they could spy out into the street, and they had at last begun working on either side of the table, at the upper end of which sat Madame Larat. There were eight in number, each with her pot of glue, pincers, tools, and curling standing in front of her. On the work-table lay a mass of wire, reels, cotton, wool, green and brown paper, leaves and petals cut out of silk, satin or velvet. In the centre, in the neck of a large decanter, one flower-girl had thrust a little penny nosegay, which had been fading on her breast since the day before. "'Oh, I have some news,' said a pretty brunette named Léonie, as she leaned over her cushion to crimp some rose-petals. "'Poor Caroline is very unhappy about that fellow who used to wait for her every evening.' "'Ah,' said Nana, who was cutting thin strips of green paper, a man who cheats on her every day. Madame Lerat had to display severity over the muffled laughter. Then Léonie whispered suddenly, Quiet the boss. It was indeed Madame Titreville who entered. The tall, thin woman usually stayed down in the shop. The girls were quite in awe of her, because she never joked with them. All the heads were now bent over the work in diligent silence. Madame Titreville slowly circled the work-table. She told one girl her work was sloppy, and made her do the flower over. Then she stalked out as stiffly as she had come in. The complaining and low laughter began again. "'Really, young ladies,' said Madame Lerat, trying to look more severe than ever, "'you will force me to take measures.' The work-girls paid no attention to her. They were not afraid of her. She was too easy-going because she enjoyed being surrounded by these young girls whose zest for life sparkled in their eyes. She enjoyed taking them aside to hear their confidences about their lovers. She even told their fortunes with cards whenever a corner of the work-table was free. She was only offended by coarse expressions. As long as you avoided those, you could say what you pleased. To tell the truth, Nana perfected her education in nice style in the workroom. No doubt she was inclined to go wrong, but this was the finishing stroke, associating with a lot of girls who were already worn out with misery and vice. They all hobnobbed and rotted together, just the story of the baskets of apples when there are rotten ones among them. They maintained a certain propriety in public, but the smut flowed freely when they got to whispering together in a corner. For inexperienced girls like Nana, there was an undesirable atmosphere around the workshop, an air of cheap dance-halls and unorthodox evenings brought in by some of the girls. The laziness of mornings after a gay night, the shadows under the eyes, the lounging, the hoarse voices, all spread an odour of dark perversion over the work-table, which contrasted sharply 
with the brilliant fragility of the artificial flowers. Nana eagerly drank it all in, and was dizzy with joy when she found herself beside a girl who had been around. She always wanted to sit next to Big Lisa, who was said to be pregnant, and she kept glancing curiously at her neighbour, as though expecting her to swell up suddenly. "'It's hot enough to make one stifle,' Nana said, approaching a window as if to draw the blind father down. But she leant forward and again looked out both to the right and left. At the same moment, Leonie, who was watching a man stationed at the foot of the pavement over the way, exclaimed, "'What's that old fellow about? He's been spying here for the last quarter of an hour.' "'Some tomcat,' said Madame Lerat. "'Nana, just come and sit down. I told you not to stand at the window.'" End of first part of chapter 11 Recording by David Lazarus